Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you at the outset of this, this is probably not a good idea. I've had, I would say, many bad ideas in my career. Maybe mostly bad ideas. But generally, when I have a bad idea, I'll say to somebody, here's my idea. And they will say, well, that's a bad idea. And then I will say, yeah, you're right. Forget it. But the thing about podcasts is the barrier to entry is so low that if you have a terrible idea, then you can just make the thing. And maybe somebody will think uh, to themselves upon listening to it, even having been warned that it is perhaps a terrible idea, they will think to, them, to themselves, oh, well, this, this was a terrible idea. And then they never come back. Or, and this is my hope, they will think to themselves, oh, I was warned that this was a terrible idea, but I, I'm actually quite enjoying this and I will come back. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut. My name is Michael Ian Black. This is Obscure. Jude the Obscure. So let me explain the premise. And this is where I may lose all of you. Some of you may recognize that Jude the Obscure is the title of a novel by Thomas Hardy. This novel was published in 1896. It has been in continuous publication ever since then. It is considered a classic in the Western canon, although I suspect it's kind of a minor classic because it's not the kind of book that I got taught in school and I feel like most people didn't get taught Jude the Obscure. Hence, I have never read Jude the Obscure. My wife, to whom I have been married, lo these many days, uh, was a, a comparative literature major at American University. And so she still has all her books from then. And one of these books is Thomas Hardy Jude the Obscure paperback edition. It's a Penguin classic. 
Penguin Classic, Judy Obscure, and it's been sitting on our bookshelves for as long as I've known her, which is over 20 years. And she's never read it, and I've never read it. And so it's just sitting there. And every once in a while, I'm like, can we get rid of this? Among other books I would like to get rid of. I'm like, can we get rid of this? And she's like, no, you can't. It's a classic. Well, we can't because because they're classics. <laughs> that, that would be disrespectful. <laughs> it's not like we have the only copy. Um, it's still, it's like throwing out a Bible. There's plenty of copies of the Bible. I would have no problem throwing out the Bible. No, but don't throw out my Bible. I haven't. And so I said to myself, self, if you can't beat them, join them. And so it came to pass that I decided I'm going to read Jude the Obscure out loud in its entirety, and comment on it as I go. The podcast itself is entitled Obscure, and the reason it's titled it is Obscure is because it was taken from, obviously, the book title, Jude the Obscure. There's another reason why I chose the title Obscure. It has to do with a sense of self. I have long felt... Uh, and this has been borne out by evidence, that although I uh, am very happy, professionally speaking, I have always been on the fringes of mainstream success. Now, the interesting thing about being obscure is that obscurity or obscure to me implies a certain amount of intention that has been thwarted. So in my case... It sort of implies that I have been trying to rise myself above the ranks and failed, leaving me obscure. So, if you were me in that situation, and I suspect maybe uh, many of you, which is to say you have ambitions and everybody is trying to succeed in a world that is rife with competition, in a world that maybe does not seem to give much of a shit about them most of the time. It feels almost impossible to distinguish oneself. And because of the impossibility, most of us will always be relegated to some degree of obscurity. And on one hand, you can go, well, that's kind of tragic. But on the other hand, you can go, and this, I think, is the mature reaction. Well, I don't care. And so I, I titled this podcast Obscure because it's about me I think, trying to come to terms and embrace my own obscurity. Now, there's a backstory to how this podcast even came to be. It involves a little bit of nausea and a fair amount of Taco Bell. I had gotten off a plane in Los Angeles, California where I do not live. I live here in the wilds of Connecticut from where I am recording. I had gotten off a plane and I was driven to a, a hotel where I was staying. And after the flight, 
and after the drive through the serpentine Los Angeles traffic, I was feeling nauseated. I got to the hotel, and the hotel is in the middle of Hollywood. And if you've ever been to Hollywood, you know that it's a terrible place. And what do I espy? Not 200 yards away, but a Taco Bell. And the thought occurs, and this is a thought one should never have. I bet I know what would make me feel better. Taco Bell. So I walk down the street, and I order my regular order at Taco Bell, which is three uh, Taco Supremes and a fountain drink. And the reason I like the fountain drinks at Taco Bell is because unlike many places, Taco Bell has Dr. Pepper. And Dr. Pepper is the finest of soda pops. I sit at Taco Bell to eat my order because here's the critical thing about Taco Bell. It doesn't keep, it doesn't keep beyond the three minutes that, that it takes for it to cool off. You have to eat it immediately. So I sit down, as I always do, to consume my Taco Bell and I hear a voice. Hey, Michael. And as obscure as I am in the world, and admittedly, it is not entirely obscure because I do get recognized, I wished in that moment to be utterly obscure, which is to say utterly unknown because I do not wish to be recognized at Taco Bell because it's the same as being recognized as your for example, taking a shit. It's a moment of deep vulnerability and nakedness for me. It's as if I've just been caught eating my own boogers. Hey, Michael. I look up. There's a guy standing there about my age, and I recognize him. It's a guy named Mike August. And I first met Mike August years ago when he was a junior agent at the William Morris Agency, and I was a junior sketch comedian with my group, The State. And I don't know if Mike's actually from Long Island, but he gives the vibe of a Long Islandy guy. And I think you know what that vibe is. Hey, hey, Michael, how you doing, man? And I see Mike August, and we start chit-chatting. Very nice guy, always has been. And it turns out that Mike August is now running Adam Carolla's podcast company. And Mike August uh, says to me, you should be doing podcasts. And I explained to him that I, I am doing a podcast. I have a podcast called How to Be Amazing, and it's, it's doing fine. And he kind of scoffs because he describes it as an NPR podcast, which is to say a podcast with a certain amount of cultural cachet, but no money. And he's right. And I say, well, I'd love to do a podcast where I can make a fortune because in my role of embracing my own obscurity, one of the things I want to do is never leave my home. So a guy like you could convert that, that massive social media presence into a podcast that I think really could do somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 downloads per episode. There's no way in show business to do less work and make more money for it than podcasting. <laughs> That's what I want. He tells me about all the money that I can make doing podcasts. And I think to myself, well, I like money. It's one of my favorite things. Maybe I'll do that. And I kind of get excited about the idea. I kind of get excited about the idea of making some actual money. So we agree to stay in touch. He follows up and he says, so you've been thinking about this. And I say to him, well, because I have this idea. And I say, what, what if I read classic literature out loud 
and comment on it as I go. Yeah, entertaining, superlative content. You don't want to talk <laughs> that. Why would you want to do that? And it clicks for me that I know what he's asking me to do. He's asking me essentially to do the Adam Carolla show, which is the, you know, the, the flagship show on their network. And if you've ever listened to the Adam Carolla show, it's Adam Carolla being Adam Carolla and talking about Adam Carolla things. I've been on the Adam Carolla show a couple times, and it, it is very well suited to Adam Carolla. I mean that totally neutrally. I don't mean that as a positive or a negative. It's just it's Adam Carolla. It's who he is. It's what he does. And I realize that he's asking for the Michael Ian Black version of that. I just can't do that. I can't talk about pop culture and current events in the same way, in the same kind of accessible way that he can, because I don't care. I realized my tastes are obscure tastes. I don't like them because they're not popular, but a lot of the things, many of the things that I like turn out not to be popular at all. I wish it were the opposite. And the second thing I realized in that moment is that I want to do the things I want to do. Maybe that is an obvious thought to have, but it wasn't obvious to me. What I want is in some fashion to read a work of classic literature out loud and comment on it as I go. Knowing full well, as I warned you at the outset of this podcast, that very well might be a terrible idea. But uh, look, I'm going to give it a try. We're trying it together. But I'll tell you what, let's take a break. And I will start reading when we come back here on Obscure. Friends, I hesitate to speak for our friend Jude, but screw it. I'm going to. I'm willing to bet that he would have loved a Lisa mattress. L-E-E-S-A mattress. Not only would Jude have been sleeping more soundly with their patented universal adaptive feel designed for all types of sleepers, featuring three premium foam layers, including a two-inch Avena top layer for cooling and breathability, as well as a two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. But friends, he would also want you to know about the six-inch core support foam that makes this mattress so durable and works for sleepers of all shapes and sizes. And you know his aunt would totally be demanding that she gets to sleep in it and that he go back to the pile of rags or wherever it is he spends his nights. Poor Jude. Poor, poor Jude. Here's another great reason to love Lisa. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. And we like that here at Obscure. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They also plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Maybe even causes like sending poor, unwanted children to study theology in Christminster. No wonder 
It is a Forbes Top 20 Startups to Watch. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights, risk-free, available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over uh, 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Plus, get $130 off and a free pillow when you go to leesa.com slash obscure. You're listening to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. And here we go. You guys, the big moment. Guys, 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 let's read. This is a paperback edition. Penguin Classics, Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure. I'm opening to the very first page. There's a little introduction about Thomas Hardy. And if you look at the introduction, you learn uh, Thomas Hardy, born in 1840. Uh, He worked as an architect. Uh, which I had no idea that he was an architect. I'm not sure that I care that he was an architect. I also learned that he was married more than once, although it's not clear by reading this introduction exactly how many times he was married. We just hear about his first wife, implying there was another, at least one more. Uh, so that's juicy uh, for the Victorian age. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, one wife, and another wife. You know, maybe he's got a side piece. We don't know. So that's exciting. Uh, Test of the D'Urbervilles, he wrote, you know, that 1891 and Jude the year after that. So interestingly, Jude the Obscure was actually his last novel. Why is that interesting? Because he lived for another 30 years. So what happened? Uh, we know that there was a little bit of a scandal around Jude the Obscure. One bishop quipped that it's, it should be called Jude the Obscene. And I don't even know why yet, because I haven't read it yet. But I'm hoping there's some boobies. So this is the last book he wrote. So I'm thinking this is either going to be a very good book or maybe a very bad book. But either way, I feel like we win. I don't know. That's the whole point. I don't know. Chapter one, the schoolmaster was leaving the village and everybody seemed sorry. The miller at Crescombe lent him the small white tilted cart and horse to carry his goods to the city of his destination about 20 miles off, such a vehicle proving of quite sufficient size for the departing teacher's effects. For the schoolhouse had been partly furnished by the managers, and the only cumbersome article possessed by the master, in addition to the packing case of books, was a cottage piano that he had bought at an auction during the year in which he thought of learning instrumental music. So he he bought a piano and was like, oh, I'm going to teach myself to play piano. And then he was like, oh, fuck it. So he got this piano, he put it in his cart. But the enthusiasm, having waned, he had never acquired any skill in playing, and the purchased article had been a perpetual trouble to him ever since in moving house. The rector had gone away for the day, being a man who disliked the sight of changes. He did not mean to return till the evening when the new school teacher would have arrived and settled in, and everything would be smooth again. The blacksmith, the farm bailiff, 
and the schoolmaster himself were standing in perplexed attitudes in the parlor before the instrument. The master had remarked that even if he got it into the cart, he should not know what to do with it on his arrival at Christminster, the city he was bound for, since he was only going into temporary lodgings just at first. A little boy of 11, who had been thoughtfully assisting in the packing, joined the group of men, and as they rubbed their chins, he sp- you know how when you're thinking, you just rub your chin. Have you ever? I've never seen anybody rub their chin while thinking. And so as they rubbed their chins, he spoke up, the little boy, I mean, blushing at the sound of his own voice. Aunt, have a great fuel house, and it could be put there, perhaps, till you found a place to settle in, sir. A proper good notion, said the blacksmith. It was decided that a deputation should wait on the boy's aunt, an old maiden resident. Oh, there she is, the old spinster aunt that we've grown accustomed to in the world of literature, and ask her if she would house the piano till Mr. Phillotson should send for it. The smith and the bailiff started to see the practicability, that's a good word, practicability of the suggested shelter, and the boy and the schoolmaster were left standing alone. And uh, the schoolmaster says, uh, sorry I am going, Jude, asked the latter kindly. Tears rose into the boy's eyes, for he was not among the regular day scholars who came unromantically close to the schoolmaster's life, but one who had attended the night school only during the present teacher's term of office. The regular scholars, if the truth must be told, stood at the present moment afar off, like certain historic disciples indisposed to any enthusiastic volunteering of aid. So they're just standing there like assholes watching the guy go. Because they're, they're with him every day. They're with him every day and they're like, oh, this fucking guy. Good, good riddance. Good riddance, Jimmy Stewart. Because uh, they see him every day. Because they, you know, they go to school every day. So they're like, oh, let's see who the new teacher is. Hopefully it'll be like Mr. Kata. Hey, Mr. Kata. And they're going to, so, th- so these people are, are going to start the very first chapter of the Sweat Hogs. And th- uh, that comes later in the book. The boy awkwardly opened the book he held in his hand, which Mr. Phillotson had bestowed on him as a parting gift, and admitted that he was sorry. So am I, said Mr. Phillotson. Why do you go, sir? asked the boy. Ah, that would be a long story. You wouldn't understand my reasons, Jude. You will, perhaps, when you are older. I think I should now, sir. Yeah, Like, what's so hard to understand? You're leaving? I want to know why. Oh, you wouldn't understand. I think I should know, sir. Like, I'm get, I, I, I'm 11, and pretty much I work all day every day, and uh, I go to school when I can, and I'm pretty sure I understand what life is all about. Well, don't speak of this everywhere. Do you know what a university is? And a university degree? It is the necessary hallmark of a man who wants us to do anything in teaching. My scheme or dream is to be a university graduate and then to be ordained by going to live at Christminster or near it. I shall be at headquarters, so to speak, and if my scheme is practicable at all, I consider that being on the spot will afford me a better chance of carrying it out than I should have elsewhere. Well, why didn't he just say so? You wouldn't understand, Jude. I'm, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree and I'm going to be ordained. You wouldn't, but you, you couldn't possibly understand. 
what does this kid have against Jude? Who I think we're going to find out is the obscure of Jude the obscure. Fuck you, dude. The Smith and his companion returned. Old Miss Fowley's drew a fuel house. I'm going to go with Fowl because she's a spinster aunt. Old Miss Fowley's fuel house was dry and eminently practicable, and she seemed willing to give the instrument standing room there. It was, accordingly, left in the school till the evening, when more hands would be available for removing it, and the schoolmaster gave a final glance round. Let's take another break. This is Obscure. Welcome back to Obscure. Okay, at this point in the reading, the teacher, he gets up on his cart and he says, Jude, it's been fun having you in my class. If you're ever in uh, Christchurch, look me up. And he goes... And Jude is distraught, and he, and he goes over to the well because he's going to think about it. You know how you, you go over to the well to think about it and reflect. And he looks down at the bottom of the well, and he, he says to himself, In the mellow, dramatic tones of a whimsical boy that the schoolmaster had drawn at that well scores of times on a morning like this and would never draw there anymore. I've seen him look down into it when he was tired with his drawing, just as I do now, and when he rested a bit before carrying the buckets home. But he was too clever to bide here any longer, a small, sleepy place like this. Grow up, Jude. A tear rolled from his eye into the depths of the well, thus sullying the well with tuberculosis. It doesn't say that. The morning was a little foggy, and the boy's breathing unfurled itself as a thicker fog upon the still and heavy air. His thoughts were interrupted by a sudden outcry. Bring on that water, will ya, you idle young harlequin? It came from an old woman who had emerged from her door towards the garden gate of a green-thatched cottage not far off. The boy quickly waved a signal of assent, drew the water with what was a great effort for one of his stature, landed and emptied the big bucket into his own pair of smaller ones, and, pausing a moment for breath, started with them across the patch of clammy greensward, where I like that, that the lawn is clammy. Ew. Ew, a clammy lawn. The clammy greensward, whereon the well stood, nearly in the center of the little village, or rather, Hamlet of Mary Green. Yeah, we don't want to look. We're not. We're not going to call this thing a village, guys. Come on. I mean, a village. That's one thing. A hamlet. That's totally different. It was as old-fashioned as it was small, and it rested in the lap of an undulating upland adjoining the North Wessex Downs. Old as I don't know what that means. Old as it was, however, the well shaft was probably the only relic of the local history that remained absolutely unchanged. Many of the thatched and dormer dwelling houses had been pulled down of late years, and many trees felled on the green. Above all, the original church, humpbacked, wood-turreted, and quaintly hipped, had been taken down and either cracked up into heaps of road metal in the lane or utilized as pigsty walls, garden seats, guard stones to fences, and rockeries in the flower beds of the neighborhood. In place of it all, 
a tall new building of modern Gothic design, unfamiliar to English eyes, had been erected on a new piece of ground by a certain obliterator of historic records who had run down from London and back in a day. So I guess what that means is some asshole from London was like, hey, let's put a church here. Let's tear down this piece of shit church, build a new church, and I'll make myself a pretty penny. He thought, I'll make myself a pretty penny. The site whereon so long had stood the ancient temple to the Christian divinities was not even recorded on the green and level grass plot that had immemorially been the churchyard, the obliterated graves being commemorated by eight-penny cast-iron crosses warranted to last five years. So that's chapter one of Jude the Obscure, and we're left with an image of all the old things being torn down and replaced by new things, new cheapy things, things that are warranted to last only five years, and yet the church had been there for time immemorial, and then it was replaced, and I, I suspect that's what we call in literature a metaphor. So that was chapter one. And this has been episode one of Obscure. And this podcast, I think, will be a combination of things. A diary in some sense, which is maybe the same as saying a confessional, a book club in some sense, because I'm hoping that there'll be enough people listening along that we can form a community of sorts. It's also a challenge to myself and probably to you to get through it. But I also want it to be a place where I talk about obscurity and I talk about arcana and I talk about all the things, all the passions that people have that to mainstream culture would be considered obscure. And at the end of it, we'll be able to say to ourselves, well, we know a lot about Jude the Obscure. And somebody will say, so? And we will be unable to answer that question. And the answer will be something like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, I want to thank you for joining me on the first episode of Obscure, the podcast where I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was going to say a thrilling episode, but I'm, I'm humble. If you like what you've heard, please... Write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what you've heard, take it up with Thomas Hardy. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, and you would, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, Spanish Aki Presents. Presents.